all you intelligent and cultured and very good-looking people out there. And welcome to another episode of Jazztopia, my smash hit new internet program in which I speak to some of the great minds in jazz and improvised music to get their perspectives and philosophies on the art of improvisation and composition, as well as their wild tales from the long and winding path to musical righteousness. I'm your host, Bobby Spellman, and as we go into the first full month of COVID lockdown, I hope everybody's doing all right out there. I uh, hope everybody's eating right, trying to get some exercise, get enough sleep, checking out some great music, maybe revisiting some old records, checking out some new records, maybe reading a book, maybe getting to some projects you've been meaning to get to for a while, uh, maybe finally cleaning out that garage, you know, uh, get into some watercolor painting, whatever you're into. I've uh, been doing all right over here. There's uh, unfortunately a, a couple weeks of a live music drought been tough not being able to go out and see some wild music but fortunately there's been a lot of good music being put out recently a lot of a lot of new records being released uh this week my guest from last week joe morris released an album with keyboardist jamie saft called lundy road uh, i got to see both joe and jamie saft at a uh kind of a wild dive uh, irish dive bar in boston uh, which as i'm saying that i realize is uh, most of the places in Boston, uh, they were playing with a group called Slobber Pup, which is kind of free music meets punk and hardcore. It was, it was great. It's a great show. So be sure to check out uh, Lundy Road by Jamie Saft and Joe Morris. You can find it on glacialerratic.bandcamp.com. And the Anna Weber and Angela Morris big band have just released an album, Both Are True. I got to see the Weber Morris big band last year at the Jazz Gallery, and it's really an amazing group. Uh, really astounding writing, uh, something you've never heard before. So be sure to check that out. Both are true. And uh, you may remember from last week, I'm putting out an album in a couple weeks as well. Uh, May 22nd, my album Revenge of the Cool will be coming out on Sunnyside Records. So keep an eye out for that. I'll keep you informed. I'll let you know. All right, gang. Well, without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest this week, the inimitable bassist, composer, and band leader, Mappa Elliott. Mappa is most well-known for leading his group Mostly Other People Do the Killing, a freewheeling, wild, and ever-evolving jazz group known for outrageously deconstructing and reassembling Mappa's own compositions, which are based on the whole history of the jazz tradition. A Mostly Other People Do the Killing show is, a, is an unpredictable adventure into free improvisation, and it's, it's always a spectacular event. It's always an amazing group to see, so if you live in the New York area, or around, and uh, you see that they're playing. They usually play every couple of months at Shapeshifter or one of the places around, so be sure to keep an eye out for that. It's an amazing show. Uh, mostly other people do the killing seems to have a knack for really balancing a deep love and respect for the jazz tradition with a completely irreverent disregard for convention, and it always comes out as an amazing show, uh, like nothing you've ever seen. The band is currently comprised of Ron Stabinski on piano and Kevin Shea on drums, but over the years, it's included a, an amazing roster of musicians, including, uh, among others, John Aravagon on saxophone and Peter Evans on trumpet. Uh, they've released a ton of records. All of them are amazing. Definitely check them out, uh, including their 2014 smash hit, Blue, which was a meticulous transcription and recreation of Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, which set the jazz world on fire with controversy and philosophical discussions on the meaning of 
jazz and improvisation and improvisation's role in the genre and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, as of last, I always love that kind of stuff. Uh, MAPA runs a, a series of groups that have uh, all amazing names, including Unspeakable Garbage and Acceleration Due to Gravity. And he's always getting himself into some really interesting projects and coming up with some amazing new music. So be sure to follow him, check him out. Uh, we had a lot of fun talking about his philosophies on naming bands and naming uh, naming songs and the role that the musician and the composer should play in programming people's minds or pulling them into the music. Uh, it's a really interesting discussion. Uh, Mop is a fascinating character. It is really a, a thoughtful uh, composer, and uh, I know you'll have a lot of fun. We sure did. So, without further ado, here he is, Mappa Elliot. Check, check, check it to check. All right, Mappa, check the mic so I know that it works. Check, 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 check. Right on. All right. Well, thanks, Mappa, for doing this, man. I appreciate you sitting down with me and Anytime. going through um, your musical world. Cool. Uh, it, you are, I would say, the finest band namer hey. in all of New York City. I, I will take it. Yeah. Uh, Great. Wh- where'd you come up with the name f- for mostly other people do the killing? And wh- what was the what was the origin of that group? That's uh, that name is from an article I read in school about Leon Theremin. Oh, interesting. Inventor of the theremin. I might get just a little bit closer. Okay, get it like, up yeah, like yeah. this. Cool. So, yeah. So, Leon Theremin uh, invented the theremin in, like, the late teens and then, mm-hmm. like, did concert tours and then kind of disappeared because Stalin disappeared him uh, yeah, in sure. the 30s. And then he showed up at, like, an electronic music convention in New York in the early, like, in, like, 1980 or something. Mm-hmm. And everybody was shocked that he was still alive. And so he did an interview then and was asked about Stalin and I still have this article someplace in one of these folders. Um, and his response was that Stalin wasn't so bad because mostly other people did all the killing. <laughs> I was like, that's a band name. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, uh, and that band, there were like a couple of precursors to that band in college. Uh, Peter Evans, the trumpet player, and I went to school together. Mm-hmm. And we had a band my last year of school called Kimmy Gibbler that was... Alto saxophone, trumpet, bass, drums, uh, th- and that was one of like the test runs, and that band was really fun. And then I I moved to New York a year before Peter did, because he's a year behind me in school, and I met John Ravagon and the whole this whole Chicago contingent of people that I still play with a lot of Brian Murray, John Lundbaum, Matt Canellos, Aravagon, probably some other. Apologize to whoever I'm forgetting from that crew. Aaron Irwin. Uh, Matt McDonald. <laughs> anyway, they mm-hmm. all went to sure. Northwestern together. So I met them and uh, so kind of knew that Arabagon would be the alto player in that band as soon as Peter got to town. Sure. So, yeah. And that was the thinking. And then you started the group, named the group. Na- oh, I, knew, the I knew what the name was before it even existed. Yeah. Uh, that'll be the name of the band. Uh, and then we started rehearsing in like the f- fall, early fall of 2003. Okay. So Peter moved here over that summer. And kind of, I wrote a bunch of the stuff that summer for the you know the first record, and then we started playing in like September or something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What were the first couple of gigs? Uh, we the first couple of gigs were uh, at Niagara, which is on the corner of Tompkins Square Park, and at that point there was a guy named Will Connell, uh, multi reed older, uh, kind of in the 
AACM school of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also in the super spiritual and warm and comforting. Uh, so he ran a weekly, I want to say Wednesday night, series at Niagara where he would have a band play two sets starting at eight or something. And then there'd be an open jam session that Greg Glassman uh, would host. Mm-hmm. And so this was in 02, 03, 04. And so I had, when I first came to town, because Greg had told me about that, because he was also an Oberlin guy. And so I'd been to the jam session a couple of times and got to know Will and then kind of you know talked to Will and was like, hey, I've got this quartet. Could we do the, the gig? And so our first gig was in early November of of 03 uh, at Niagara. And then we probably played four or five times over the next year at that place. Plus, there's a guy named D Pop who was booking stuff at CBGB's and other kind of downtown places doing kind of, you know, greater free jazz style stuff. So we played in that first year a bunch of D Pop shows at, you know, Bowery Poetry Club and cbgb's and those kinds of places uh and then we recorded the first record like summer 04 so maybe like you know like about a year into the band sure yeah well, you've had, i mean the band's been going for 17 years at this point, quite a quite a long time that's pretty good huh it's pretty good that's a pretty yeah. good run it's 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 working out it continues to work out i mean we kind of it became the thing that it is pretty fast uh sure like initially it was like right kind of ornette inspired you know Chordal instrumentless quartet. Yeah. And it was a very straight ahead, like free jazz band initially. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as we played more live shows, and then once Kevin Shea was the drummer, uh, it, it got weirder in the way that it is weird now. Okay. In that the, the normal stuff got more normal, and the weirder stuff got more weird, and the jumps between those two things got more chaotic. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and yeah. so within like three or four gigs, we'd be you know playing a tune, and it would be a very straight-ahead rhythm changes, like pretty up for like a minute and a half, followed by everything falls apart and it's totally scronky, and now we're playing Misty. Sure. You know, and that took eight seconds yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know and so that kind of pretty quickly became the thing but i guess you know it took about a year and yeah then within a year it was like all right this is not going to be a collective we're going to play my tunes we're going to do this thing to them and jump back and forth between things and that's that is the thing that we do yeah because you, you got a real interesting approach with the group in that it's not as though you're it, do, it doesn't seem like you're writing tunes that are intentionally avant-garde or anything like you're you're kind of like in the tradition like the tunes that you write are all really i mean great tunes but they're they're all sort of the tunes are really really normal yeah and And then the way that you i mean no matter what it is you can take it to whatever right and so it's funny for me to like to listen to like the tunes i wrote on that first record are weirder you know they're like coming out of the ornette thing sure and, you know, only one of those tunes gets played anymore. Like, the rest of them is like, all right, these, these are not the thing. Yeah. It's like a good place to start, but this is not the thing. Sure. And so, by the second record, right, all the tunes are basically Horace Silver tunes, uh-huh. if you want to get right down. Like, sure, yeah, yeah. You know, very, here's some hard bop. Everything is very tonal and predictable because as we started doing the thing, the, the trick that the band does of going in and out of things really fast works best if the written material is really recognizable instantly and really tonal. Yeah. And so the the simpler, you know, like dumb, catchy melodies and really simple chord changes so that 
when we're all freaking out, as soon as one person plays like three notes of a melody, we know exactly where we all are and can, if we want, jump in on that spot. And there's no complicated extended harmony. And I can't really tell if you're playing the tune or not. Cause like, sure. it's like, no, 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 no. Like that's one, four, one in C. Yeah. Like <laughs> we all know where we're at. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, and so all the subsequent writing for the, there's like a run of like three albums was just intentionally writing really conventional stuff so that we could take it apart and put it back together easily. Yeah. And then I decided by like about that third record that I didn't want to keep doing the same thing forever. Cause then it's like, you can kind of see where this is going. Cause now it's like 2009, we've been doing this for like five years. Right. We could just do this for the next like 40 years. And there's plenty examples in the canon of people that would do that. Horace Silver included, you know, mm -hmm. like, Horace Silver in the 90s does not sound different at all from Horace Silver in the 50s. Sure. He's just recorded a little better, and there's different guys in the band. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. So that was when we started doing, like, other weirder concept-ier stuff. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because each, yeah. each album, uh, do you think it going into an album about, all right, here's the concept for the record? Because, like, you, you have, like, Red Hot and... Uh... That started later. <laughs> yeah. So there was, like, the first record was a trial run, and that was figuring out what the band was. Yeah. And then there was a run of three albums that are all basically the same album. And now what are those? That's Shemokin. Mm -hmm. uh, this is our music. Yeah. And 44. Yeah. And this is our music and 44, you know, are culled from the same recording sessions. Okay. And so we went into the studio over the course of about a year, I think like four times and it's roughly chronological, but not really. And so those sessions are, Half half of that stuff is on music, and half of that stuff is on 44, and those tunes are not chronological. Like, there's stuff on the first album that was recorded after stuff that's on the second sure. album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the same concept. It's the same concept. And, like, those three records are the that version of the band. Yeah. And a lot of the tunes that we still play live all the time, like, you know, when we played at Shapeshifter a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, we went into one of the tunes from Shimokin like in the middle of something else uh -huh. in the same way where it was like three notes of a melody got played and everybody knew where they were. And like, and now we're doing this tune that's, you know, I wrote in like 2006 sure. and then, you know, back out of it. And yeah. That still happens pretty often. And those, those three albums have all the tunes that we do that too. And subsequently, as things got more conceptier, a few of those tunes wound up getting absorbed into the, you know, cut and paste canon that we use, but most of them not because we would kind of do that trick within this new tune and within whatever concept we were doing. And so like, you know, some of the, the music that you would know from the seven piece band, mm -hmm. a couple of those tunes we will play, but very few of those have become the things that we just go into because they're a different thing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're writing, are you thinking about for a particular group, because when you were playing a shapeshifter, you played a bunch. You know, you played a lot of the same tunes in different groups or whatever. That's but. that's that's a very recent development. Uh huh. Uh, that's like in the last year. Um, but pre, you know, even then, uh, yeah, I'm very much thinking about who's gonna play the the stuff. Um, so kind of there was that early run of records where that was written for the quartet doing what the quartet does. Great. 
and which was the concept. Which it was, was the we're going to take these right. inside and tunes. I'm and writing screw for Kevin and John and Peter, mm-hmm. and I know what they're going to do with the thing that I give them, and we're going to do our thing and great. Yeah. And so then the next thing I did was like we did a a smooth jazz record. Okay. Uh, called Slippery Rock. Okay. Uh, and. On that one, initially I was like writing keyboard parts, like John and Peter were going to maybe play keyboards, but then we did that live on a couple of gigs and it was like, it didn't work. Sure. Um, so then I kind of like rearranged it for still the same quartet, but using this totally other, basically I bought a shit ton of smooth jazz records and got way into the kind of specific vocabulary of that music like the you know you hear like four notes of bebop and you know it's bebop yeah and you hear like four notes of like post train you know post bop and you know what world you're in and there's like licks that are touchstones that everybody knows yeah right you know you play a bunch of pentatonics that like shift chromatically and you're in like 1970 land yeah um and so the smooth jazz thing is like abhorrent in a lot of ways <laughs> i was gonna ask you if you're trying to torture yourself right, well yeah i mean kind of but like well, so the thing is like most of that music is terrible but on the other hand most music is terrible sure you know it's like i'm okay with that right yeah. and i'm fine with that and so the the thing that smooth jazz does is there's like certain mostly melodic gestures that are unique to that idiom mm-hmm. and they're like it's got its own ornaments and it's got its own phrasing and you know, even taken out of context, you play certain ornaments and phrasings and, like, you're in smooth jazz land. Yeah. Regardless of what's going on around you. Sure. So I wrote a bunch of songs kind of using that vocabulary and then doing to those tunes what we do to my tunes anyway. It's just now we've got another vocabulary that's entered the fray. Sure. Which had already happened anyway. Like, for since the beginning of the band, like, that stuff would creep in as, like, a a sincere musical joke. You know, like, we'd be in the middle of some, like, art ensemble, everybody's freaking out, and then, like, you know, now we're playing uh, Careless Whisper. Yeah. Or whatever. And that had been, like, a standard thing that we would do anyway. So I was like, all right, let's, like, bring that actually into the written material. Sure. Because, you know, you play, like, a do-do-you-do, and, like, okay, cool, now we all know where we are, and bam, we can lock up. And, like, David Sanborn's Hideaway is a tune that's in the book. And like, okay. that, you know, every, st- now, like every third or fourth gig, we play Hideaway by Dave Sanborn. And it's one of those like, there are gestures in there that like, you know, one chord change and we all know where we are. Yeah. Uh, and so that was the thing that I was interested in. So we did that record. And that was pr- the first trip sideways into trying to do it. Right. And like, you know, very few people had any understanding what was going on. Uh, which in the fine. public at large, public audiences, you know, it was like it was one of those things. It was already hard enough to describe to people what the band did, and then we did that, and we, you know, the number of people who were just like, "What the hell are you guys doing?" Yeah, it's like, ah, <laughs> uh, whatever, don't worry about it. Um, but I, I'm really happy with that record, and that kind of like yielded a lot of like pretty fun stuff. And so then we were on the tour for that. And that was when the idea for the seven-piece band happened. Mm-hmm. Like, what would it be like if we expanded? What would it look like if we expanded the band? And we knew Dave Taylor from other weird stuff that we'd done with Dave Taylor. And we knew Brandon Seabrook from other weird stuff that we'd done with Brandon. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had just started working with Ron. 
Stabinsky. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, well, that's clearly going to be, those are the people we would add to this band. And so kind of getting back to your point of like writing for specific people, then it was like, all right, so that band is going to be a trumpet, trombone, saxophone front line, and a rhythm section with banjo. Uh, cool. Now I'm going to listen to like Jelly Roll Morton and 1920s Armstrong and like Fletcher Henderson for the next like six months. Yeah. And then write a book of tunes that sounds like that. Okay. So in the same way I did that with the smooth jazz thing, now I'm going to do that with like the 20s. Yeah. You know. But the personnel came first. The personnel came first. You said, this. these are the people that I want to play with. What can I do with this? Let's jump into the 20s because this banjo has to fit in here somehow. Correct. And, and that's, I think, also comes from the, there aren't very many people that we've met that are comfortable doing the thing that the band does. Yes. And so this kind of gets to kind of the way we think about the band, which is it's very predicated on the idea that if we, when we want to, we can play a rhythm changes in a way that like the guys at smoke would be approving of. Sure. And then we can also crawl all over the drum set in a way that, you know, Lester Bowie and the art ensemble would be very approving of. Yeah. And there aren't actually that many people comfortable doing both of those things. I've always been surprised at that, honestly. Me too. As a grown up, I grew up north of Boston. In Boston, there's a thriving free improvisation scene. That's right. almost like a core part of the thing, but you get people like George Garzon and Berganzi and people who can play whatever, right. who are comfortable playing in, you know, inside, outside stuff or whatever. But it, it was so, it's always been so funny to me that people who play, you know, there's a lot of people who play really inside music, but are pretty cautious about even. Even Ornette, which, I mean, Shape of Jazz to Come came out in 1959. Right. And, and we're see- still a little uneasy about <laughs> right, some like, of those. Right, like, oh, man, I don't really play free things. stuff. Right. Yeah, it's, it's like, like, man, I, he's it's all the same. melodies. Yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, he squawks. <laughs> like, that's not weird. Yeah. But to me, it's the same. It's all in the same spectrum. It's all part of the same thing. Right. Um, and I don't... There are, Yeah, but, like, despite that, there aren't very many people who do that thing. And right. so we... In those first kind of like, you know, that first formative decade, we're all playing with other people. And, you know, we would meet, insert name of amazing musician who's a good friend of ours here, that we would then get together to do just like a session and be like, all right, cool, let's play Bye Bye Blackbird. And it like wouldn't be killing in a Bye Bye Blackbird way. It's like, okay, so now let's play free. And it would sound like great. Yeah. And it's like, all right, but that's that's not the thing. Right. Or, you know, we'd play a standard session and someone would, you know, swing and sound amazing it's like all right cool let's just like play free for a while and it was like super imitative and like not that thing yeah and so we played with brandon a lot and while brandon isn't seabrook isn't like a jazz vocabulary guy he's like a tonal versus atonal and like he plays in you know traditional 1920s jazz bands doing like the quarter note splanky splanky banjo thing sure And then in his band, he runs himself through a distortion pedal and, like, shreds like a metal guitarist on banjo. Yeah. So it's like, right, that's the, you know, like, you you can convincingly, you know, sound like Johnny St. Cyr playing with Armstrong, and then you can convincingly sound like the weirdest weirdo. Sure. That works. And, you know, Dave Taylor, you know, played with Duke Ellington, and he really just wants to make squawky noises on the trombone. You know, yeah. and, and like has been in the Mingus band since the eighties. Or, sure. or what you know, so and knows the but right. can live but in like, all those worlds. Right. But is going to like do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it, etc. And so uh and then Ron is kind of like the ultimate version of that, where like, you know, stumbling across that guy was 
unbelievably amazing. So that's kind of like the core I- idea behind the, you know, as far as like my music, like that's what, that is what mostly other people do. The killing does. Yeah. Where, you know, we need to be able to play, you know, inner urge, like well, and then, you know, also be able to like, you know, sound like Cecil Taylor's band. Yeah. You know, sure. in a, in an equally convincing way. Yeah. Um, and then everything in between. So that was kind of the way that band has always been thought of. Yeah. It's like, we need to be able to play, you know, like as free as possible for an entire night and have that be, you know, that could be its own thing. And we need to be able to like, you know, play a set of standards, you know, like with a Joe Henderson band in like, you know, 1978. Yeah. And like, we're going to play Bye Bye Backward for this entire set and it's going to swing the entire time. And we can also do that. Sure. That's also a huge advantage in, in free music because on the other side of the thing, I don't want to give straight ahead players too much like too too much of a hard time. But right. in free world, there's a lot of people too that, in my mind, free music means you have the opportunity to use everything. It's right. all there. But right. instead, sometimes we get into this world where it becomes its own cliche, where it's oh. like, oh no, we only make s- oh. sounds or whatever, oh, totally. and you lose yeah. track of the there fact are, that you have the opportunity to use all these. Right, other there things. are arch conservative free improvisers yeah. out there uh, who are. <laughs> Just as bad or worse as the, like, you know, kind of Lincoln Center, super conservative, straight ahead. It's the same thing. Right. Where, right, like, that's music's 60 years old, too. And, you know, we could go out and hear, like, kind of self-purportedly experimental musicians doing the most cliched, predictable, 1966-era free jazz that's just as full of vocabulary and cliches and like, all right, now you're going to do that thing. That's like, all right, the Pharaoh Sanders octave jump. Great. Cool. Check. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. You know, now you're going to oh, sheets of sound train. Yep. Got it. Cool. Uh, weird multiphonics that kind of don't land like Ornette. Great. You know, checking off all the boxes. Yeah. Like there'll be no time check, you know? Sure. So yeah, every, there's a great tendency to kind of gravitate towards these very rigid orthodox, ways of playing whether you're like a free improvising musician or otherwise doesn't really make any difference it's like people many people gravitate towards one vocabulary and then stay there but they're all just vocabularies and so kind of like i guess like the the central thesis of that band is we're going to do all these vocabularies equally well and they're all on the table all the time yeah you know and then go sure so that's the way you know that band has always been and that's kind of the the impetus for me doing other bands now is like, all right, I'd like to not just do that thing. Sure. You know, so I formed some other bands that are not mostly other people do the killing that do not do that thing. Yeah, all so. with amazing names. Th- I think they have some good names. Uh, I'm happy with my names. Yep, yeah. Unspeakable Garbage. Yep. Uh, what else we got? Acceleration Due to Gravity. Yep. Uh, and Advancing on a Wild Pitch. Mm. Yeah. Where, where, where do those come from? Not to... Not to uh, too much names. so the stories behind yeah, not as good some well so advancing on a wild pitch is my you know i call that my straight ahead band we play forms and swing the entire time and all of those people lived in astoria for a while together i mean in the same neighborhood and uh we're all kind of varying degrees of baseball fans like, okay you know to rabbit from rabid to very very engaged sure uh, and so that, that's the baseball band and I, advancing on a wild pitch has been a band name kicking around in my head for like years. And that was the correct name for that band. Sure. Um, so 
Then Unspeakable Garbage is my rock band. It's like an 80s rock band with yeah. no singer. And that band got named. We were trying to come up with a name, and they were all kind of like artsy and dumb. And then we had a rehearsal at my old high school. Like maybe the second rehearsal we were doing of like reading the tunes. And I was talking to the drummer, Dan Monahan, and he's like, you know, you got, you got a drum set at the school? I'm like, yeah, but it, that, it's like unspeakable garbage. And he's like, that's the name of the band. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he was playing on this terrible drum kit. Uh, and that just like stuck. And we, at first we weren't convinced. And then we did our first gig in Philadelphia a few months later. And like we were announced as that. I'm like, yeah, that sounds right. Like yeah. this is, that's correct. So, and then uh, Acceleration Due to Gravity uh, was kind of more of like a conceptual title where the music for that band is cranked up to 11 at all times and like never slows down and is like kind of trying to be this perpetually accelerating thing uh and it's a bigger band and that was just like that seemed like a an appropriate that one has a that's an appropriate name. yeah sure okay. <laughs> yeah <laughs> sure all right i guess while we're on the name thing now most of the tunes that you write for maybe all of them i'm not sure all for are named after towns in pennsylvania yeah are, are, are all of them about that all of them uh since graduating from college okay yeah impressive i'm always uh let's say astounded less, less impressive when you know how many towns there are in pennsylvania it seems like an endless amount more I, than I, any I, other state in the union i'll have you is know. that right yeah fascinating, fascinating. <laughs> so, so you're not worried about running out of names of towns in unless california. i'm like you know i go into like a bach level creativity phase uh, I mean, you've written you've written a lot of tunes it's a lot I mean, of you, tunes you, but i'm still you know not up to 200 even and i've, I've got I got thousands. So Pennsylvania's got a lot of really stupid laws going back to like the revolution. Uh-huh. And because of the way Pennsylvania is a commonwealth, much like Massachusetts. Ah, yes. And part of that has to do with like incorporating a town in Pennsylvania is unbelievably easy. Okay. So it's basically like if me and you bought some land in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania, built houses there, we could name that a town and get it incorporated in like a week. Mm. So... We might have to work on this. Right, later we on. could we could have a town in Pennsylvania by the end of the month, no problem. Um, and so because of that, unlike most other states where there's like a town and then like a large area outside the town that is like you know county jurisdiction or something like that. Yeah. Pretty much any place anybody lives in Pennsylvania has a town name. Okay. So they're interesting. That's so, why there are so many, so many uh, towns, and so many of the names are so stupid. They're super wild because yeah. you, you know you gotta come up with new ones. So right. you get some really weird names. Yeah. So having grown up there, uh, I was aware of the number of ridiculous town names just from near where I grew up, and then kind of looking into that even a little bit more, it was like, man, this is like a endless well of stupid names, <laughs> and then. <laughs> Then that ties into kind of another thing, thinking about music in general, like um, the naming of instrumental compositions has always struck me as pretty dumb. Okay. Because of the kind of inherent disconnect between any, you know, logo-centric title and then like pure sound with no program. And so the, the, the issue has always been like, all right, so if I give a song a title... Like, what's that, you know, Steve Swallow tune? Like, Journey to Receive or whatever, right? Now it's like you've implanted this idea in the audience's head. But you're going to play a jazz tune that, like, could be called literally anything else. Okay. It would make no difference. Only now you've, like, pre-programmed the audience, and especially, like, less musically educated audience members, to think of it in this certain way. Like, oh, yeah, we're going on a journey. And it's like, 
no, you're not. You know, <laughs> and and if you are, why? You know, like, sure. And you know, going back to like the 1800s and program music in general, like you know, creatures of Prometheus or whatever. It's yeah. just like. It sounds the same if you call it like raindrops and sunbeams. Like nobody cares. Sure, maybe. But, but you don't think but, there's any value in like. Ins- well, there is. It, so the yeah. value is like manipulative, though. So if I call this journey to receive, now everybody's thinking like we're on some journey, and that then is very limiting, I think, for improvisers because now you're like tethered to this like programmed idea of what the song is about, and if spontaneously some other shit happens in the tune, which if you're playing jazz, it should. Yeah, especially on, what you're doing. Right. And, yeah. like, you know, you're not on Journey to Receive anymore. You're doing some other shit. Right. Hopefully. Yeah. And so why'd you even call it that in the first place? And so if you're not going to have, like, a deliberate program where you're trying to, like, plant quasi-manipulative ideas in the audience's head before you play anything, just give them numbers. You know, it works for Braxton. It works, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. or whatever. Or know that that's what you're doing and be upfront about it sure but it's like it's a manipulative thing and there's just been so many times when like you know there'll be a tune that has some kind of evocative title and then you listen to it and it like has nothing like that's maybe what it meant to whoever it was who wrote the tune or it's like super abstract like we were just listening to mccoy tyner extensions what does extensions mean right you know, yeah like, are you talking about the chords or whatever you're just like shredding over some modal stuff and it's awesome you could have called this like the alphabet or you could have called it like sunshine yeah well, it doesn't matter sure. um but even the Braxton thing, like, to some degree, like, if you call it piece 23J, that's its own... It's its own thing. almost its own thing. And he, from reading all his stuff, he's got a vast sea of nomenclature and ideas behind sure all those does. titles. Which is awesome. And that's cool. But you're saying it doesn't implant some it doesn't vi- implant. image in somebody's head or right. something they have to follow. But it still is going to have an effect. So then I was like, all right, I need to just pick something random to, like, name all the tunes after. Okay. And... Like, I studied biology in college. I was like, I could just pick, like, a, you know, bio terms. And this one's called mitochondria, and this is called, like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I was like, ah, it's dumb. And I was like, well, if it's going to be dumb, let's get, like, really dumb. <laughs> and so Pennsylvania town names it is. And then that also then turned into an opportunity where I can, like, tell these, like, elaborate or ridiculous stories about these towns. And none of that has anything to do with the tune. Sure. Uh, but it, like, provides this narrative that's like a you know like a red herring okay like, you know, here's here's a you know like you know my current tunes are all about towns where like disasters have happened yeah I was gonna so ask i'll get up on that. stage and i'll be like all right this is called centralia and centralia is this town where there's this mine fire that's been going forever it's burning underground it'll never go out like you know, it's a great metaphor there and then the tune is like the tune it's yeah, like yeah, some yeah. crap that i sat down and wrote at the piano and i kind of i very much like that version of things where I'll like tell these, you know, with a seven piece band too, I'll tell these like elaborate stories about some of these towns and then we're just playing a jazz tune. Yeah. Like it's going to go wherever it goes and it does its thing. And I could have called it anything, but like, I'll take these like, you know, quirky town names as a way of dodging the whole program music thing. Yeah. And and to let the audience decide what their adventure is. This is clearly not about a town in Pennsylvania. Right. So think of it what you will. But I'm going to tell you this funny story about Pennsylvania anyway. Sure. Um, Yeah. And then that, you know, it avoids the kind of game of cat and mouse that I hear people talk about all the time where it's like, you know, you'll play some, like, you know, here's, you know, ballad for my significant other. And then you play like a ballad. It's like, oh, that was so sweet. And it's just like, (laughs) we could have just played Misty. You know, <laughs> that's the same thing. You know, like, are we really like, you know, you're not, we're still just playing a song and like 
theoretically, it, there, maybe there's some emotional content or not. I could also sit down on the piano and write like a sappy ballad about nothing and then tell you like, this is for my dog that died. And I'll be like, oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. But it's not. Or maybe it is. It doesn't matter. Like, if you're actually <laughs> listening to the thing as music, that shouldn't, like, that's only going to interfere. Like, you're just going to, like, program the audience to think a certain thing. And now you're going to hear this as, like, you know, me writing this sweet song for my significant other. And you're not going to be really, like, paying attention to what's actually happening. Or you're going to, like, view it through that lens. Yeah. So even if we go off into left field and start, like, you know, shredding or doing something, like, musically inappropriate. Sure. Now, like, okay, are you now supposed to interpret that I don't like my significant other? And this is some, like, unconscious, yeah. like, <laughs> angst. You know, like, no, sure. we're, like, playing abstract music that, like, is going to mean something different to everybody. Like, you know. Yeah. Just do that. But do you think that – would that change if you were writing music that was that was much more, let's say, composed or specific or in any regard? You want the audience to be free to interpret it to their free at their free. Discretion. I want the audience to be to be free and, like, you know, not to Beethoven in 2020, which gets annoying. But, like, you know, Symphony Number no. 5 is fucking Symphony Number no. 5. Sure. Works. Doesn't need a program. It's killing. Yeah. You know? Symphony Number no. 9. It's got a program. Doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, like, sure. the first four movements are badass. Like, even if you get rid of the last, you know, and so it's just like, yeah, we're also programmed that, like, right, we clearly don't need titles to, like, enjoy abstract music. Yeah. You know, or, like, what's the Ornette record where all the titles are just initials? Uh, is that Circle oh. with the Hole in the Middle? I think that's right. Yeah. You know, they like, don't mean something, but they it doesn't mean matter something, what it but is. I don't know what they mean. Yeah, yeah, I read yeah. what they meant, and I stopped. Like, I didn't, like, it registered for, like, 30 seconds, and then I didn't no, care. Like, C&D is awesome. Yeah, like, right. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. what that's about. It sure. sounds great, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder about that. It's an interesting point, for sure, and it's an age-old question. Is right. Do we need to title these things or not? And there are certain things that, like, I love Anthony Braxton's music that doesn't have any, doesn't need a title, and it conveys whatever it conveys, and I right. can feel it or understand it or whatever. Yep. And then sometimes I'll listen to the Rite of Spring and be like, you know, it's kind of cool that they're, whatever this, you know, right. the, the narrative was in that particular context. Right. And in that context, the title is really just telling you something about the creative process. And I like to think that the Rite of Spring would be just as awesome if it was called, like, Ballet Number no. 2. Sure. Yeah. But... Knowing that, like, all right, this is a bunch of Russian dudes in Paris trying to be super edgy, mm -hmm. and, like, that's how they got to this place. Cool. Um, and so the argument can be made either way, but I think it's just, like, because it can go either way, and the, the program side of things can be so manipulative... I'd rather just like steer clear of that altogether. Yeah, especially with what you're doing, it sounds like because right. you are going to make a left turn at any given. Going to make a left turn at any and given point. You want to be prepared so, for that, right? Yeah, so maybe let's just not pretend that we're not going to do that. Right. Uh, and, and and yeah, like just thinking about like you know classical composer symphonies, they just have numbers. Yeah. And like, totally works. It doesn't need more than that, you know, or like Gershwin preludes doesn't need a title. Sure. You know, yeah. It's number two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> you, right. you know? Yeah, exactly. And so you clearly don't need to do that. And when you do do it, it's going to be manipulative no matter what. So, you know, make that decision up front, you know, knowing that, like, even if you're trying, you might fail. Like, you know, you can give it some what you think is meaningful title and then someone else hears it and, like, doesn't get that at all. Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to bother, fine. But, like, I'm not going to bother. Yeah. So I got my... As you can see on the shelf right there, the yellow next to the Atlas of the World is the Atlas of Pennsylvania next to the speaker. Oh, perfect. Uh, and so I just like so, pull, pull that sucker out and look at the map and pick a funny one and red tune. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering about that. I was wondering about the, the title to uh, This Is Our Music. And then I was looking through a map of Philadelphia, trying to, uh, Pennsylvania, rather, trying to book some gigs. And I was like, there it is. Yep. What That's a strange name far, for a town. Not far from where I grew up. 
Yeah. So yeah, I'm a good friend that grew up in music. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that, that one that one was a gimme. And Shemokin, like it's a town called Shemokin. That's yeah. hilarious. Perfect. Yeah, yeah perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's funny too because you pair it with all the recreations of the album covers. Or that's got to be fun to do that. That was super fun. And uh, I was telling Diana this story like a couple of days ago. We were talking about like the WBGO kind of you know racial sensitivity trauma that's going on a little bit right now, and uh, you know. Rashawn Roland Kirk's widow was working there for years, and I went and did an interview there uh, for one of their shows hmm. with, with Ron. And what the, the cover to 40 Fort is a recreation of Roy Haynes' Out of the Afternoon mm-hmm. with Roland Kirk. So on the cover, Arabagon is like dressed exactly like Rashawn Roland Kirk in that picture. You know, we spent all this time like tracking down the right clothes and blah, blah, blah. That's amazing. And she was like concerned. Oh, really? So she kind of, she's like, yeah, like, you know, what's, what's, why did you do that? And, you know, so then we're just like, well, growing up, that was the, one of my favorite records and we play jazz, but we're these like, you know, conservatory trained, you know, non-African-American musicians who like have this weird relationship to that music, like through recordings and like this, you know, kind of strange kind of hero worship. So that like when we play, we're like immediately aware of like the history of how we got to this point but we don't want to be a historical recreation band like we don't want to like copy what you know your late husband did even though he's this massive influence sure so we play this music that like takes that and like warps it into our own version but then we like go home and listen to this record because it's one of our favorite records so we wanted the cover to do the same thing so we're like kind of taking on this like persona of you know, Roy Haynes and Tommy Flanagan, um, because that's kind of what we're doing musically. We're like, we're not this person, but we're like standing in this weird kind of, you know, uh, pod people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like musical pod people. We're like, we can't actually ever be those people or play their music exactly. So we're trying to like come as close as we can, which creates this really weird juxtaposition. Sure. Because like, we don't want to insult our favorite music by just like doing the same thing over and over again, but we also don't want to, except sometimes, uh, <laughs> uh, but we also don't want to just like, you know, completely pretend that those are not our like massive influences. And right. so then she was like, that's real sweet. And, you know, then nice. like, you know, I sat down at her desk and had this like, you know, 45 minute conversation with her. And she's like one of the sweetest people I've ever met. But oh, like, I think she was like, you know, and rightfully so worried that like, you know, we kind of like thought it was silly or stupid. Yeah, but it's really, like, it's paying tribute it's like, no, 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 to no, 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 like, that was my favorite record when I was, like, 11. Yeah. Like, I used to play that record all the time. Like, they play, you know, uh, some standards on there, and they're like, you know, Kirk is doing his, like, multiple horns thing, and, like, 11-year-old me thought that was, like, the coolest thing I'd ever heard, you know, so, yeah. like, Fly Me to the Moon is on that record. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kill him. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, and so it's just like, right, like, every time I play Fly Me to the Moon, I think of your husband doing that thing and it's like the happiest shit ever yeah but like i don't want to actually do that i want to do like my weird version of that tune sure like you know one informs the other so like let's make the art do the same thing that the music does no doubt yep all right this is a perfect segue to uh uh, i remember when blue came out (laughs) which and we were talking with aravagon about that last night is that right yep yep. and uh it seemed like uh everybody came out of the woodworks to be furious and i was i lived for that i was thrilled many many people (laughs) amazing uh one of the the best thing about it and like kind of the intentional thing about it was that it's like it is a litmus test Uh uh-huh because it it 
is a vehicle for everyone to project whatever they already think about music onto it. Yeah. And, you know, still today, uh, when I, like, see people that I haven't seen or I meet people, everybody wants to talk to me about that. And that's great. That was the, the idea. It's like, it's a piece of art. It is not a piece of jazz. And every single person I've talked to has a different angle. Mm -hmm. Like, no two people I've talked to, like, think the same thing about it. Everyone's got a really strong opinion that is based on their kind of most core view of what music is and is not, whether they hate it or love it. Yeah. And then that's the thing they want to talk about. Yeah. And it's like, score. Like, yeah, that was exactly that was the yeah. entire point. You that's know? amazing. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's an amazing. It's amazing that you that you actually put so much time into meticulously recreating this thing. Oh, it was a stupid well. amount of time. <laughs> it's so <laughs> dumb. Is everybody on board? Like, did you have the idea as a as a reflection on the the what was the origin of the idea here? Uh, I think the origin it was definitely me and Peter mm -hmm. initially, and talking about like various dumb ideas. So it probably goes back to like you know early 2000s um and so on the first mostly other people record which is like eponymous our eponymous debut mm -hmm. um we do Monin by bobby timmons and kevin and i start playing free and peter plays lee morgan solo note for note in the chaos nice uh and that sounds great and then pretty shortly thereafter, in a different conversations, so we weren't really thinking about that, but it was just like thinking about, you know, the tendency in recent jazz to be very like historically tethered and there's a right way to play and a wrong way to play. And so much of the kind of conservative straight ahead jazz establishment is very stuck on this. You should play like it is 1960 at all times and follow the, you know, very prescribed. Yeah. It's just like, but if we do that, like, I mean, should we just like go back and like play this exactly the way those guys did? And then we're just like, what if we just like completely copied kind of blue? Like exactly. You know, like, would, you know, and so that was like a joke. We're like, ah, oh, it's hilarious. Ah. And then like, you know. A couple of months later, we talk about it again, and it's like still funny, but like in a different way. And then like a couple of years later, we're like still talking. Like, oh yeah, man, we should we should we should do that. And it was one of those. We have lots of stupid ideas, um, <laughs> but that was one that like kept getting more interesting the more we thought about it. Yeah. And so eventually, it was just like, no, 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 we need to actually we need to actually do this, just because as we thought about it, just as a thought experiment, it kept opening up more and more doors. Yeah. And it was like, okay, we should not just, like, think about this. We should actually do it. Uh, and we should do it, like, well. And so, you know, we decided to, like, yep, we're going to actually do this. Here we go. But then it took, like, years. So it was... To transcribe... Everybody transcribed all the individual parts and... Well, that part didn't take years. But, I mean... And then but learning the... It the got... Thing. I mean, it's pretty nuanced. Like, Peter's got, like, some of the... Oh, it got... The, it got we the got... Miles is... Like, it got all stupid. Those, so, okay, yeah. I, I can tell... I can tell those stories... So, in about 2010, we started transcribing it, and I, you know, spent a couple of months, because I wasn't, like, intensely doing it, just, like, writing out all the Paul Chambers bass lines, mm -hmm. you know, quarter note by quarter note, and, like, all the little grace notes, and yeah, yeah, you know, and, you know, it immediately starts this rabbit hole, so then it's like, okay, 
there are multiple CD masterings plus like, you know, vinyl, original vinyl and whatever. And they all sound different. Yeah. And you can hear things on some recordings that you can't hear on others. And yeah, yeah. So we like, first we're like, we, okay, well, we got to listen to like all the different versions. And so you check your transcription against a new mastering. And then you hear some shit in that one that you didn't hear in the first one. And da, da, da. So like that expands the rabbit hole. Sure. Uh, and then of everybody in the band, Arabagon is the most transcribe mm-hmm. And that's just like how he learned how to play. He had a teacher early on who was just like, you need to transcribe. And he's like a transcribing maniac. And so as an alto player, he kind of self-admittedly tried to stay as far away from Cannonball Adderley as he could. Just like, that's a super uh, weighty part of the music history. Yeah. It's like, if you play alto saxophone, and you're going to play bebop. And you're not going to play like Charlie Parker. And you're then like, you have to confront Cannonball one way or another. Like, because that's sure. how you fucking do that. Yeah. And John was like, I'm going to not sound like Cannonball. So John had like, all through college and grad school one and grad school two up through Juilliard and all that stuff, been trying to like not sound like Cannonball, which he was very successful at. John does not sound like Cannonball. So now it's like, cool, not only do you need to sound like Cannonball, you need to sound as convincingly like (laughs) Cannonball as you possibly can. So he's like, shit. So being John, he transcribed every single Cannonball Adderley solo with the Miles Davis band before Kind of Blue before he transcribed any kind of blue. Wow. So he went to the entire canon, and just all the cannonball there was, he transcribed. Then he did kind of blue. Then he, I don't remember whether he rented or borrowed the exact same model saxophone that cannonball played. And then he tracked down the exact same mouthpiece. And his cannonball stuff is like insanely convincing on that record. And... Uh, over the course of the process, we had to go back and scrap all the original. We did a series of sessions in the first year and then wound up not using any of it except the alto stuff. Really? And so on the record, everything is from a later recording session. Like the alto on the actual record was recorded a year before everything else. And as we were like having to go back and redo it, John was like, I'm not redoing the alto. Like I'm never going to get it better. That's what we use. So the alto stuff is taken from a completely different studio, different day, different year, group of sessions. Wow. And then everything else got re-recorded. How did you do that? Uh, How we was, we were doing the recording process? We were doing everything isolated. Well, f- we didn't know because like, you know, we started this very haphazardly and had no idea what we were doing. So we knew we were going to have to individually do the horns because John was doing train and canon. Right. So that's not possible. Yeah. So we were going to like, okay, so we got to do the rhythm section. And initially we were doing the rhythm section stuff kind of piece by piece. And that didn't work. And we also like switched piano players. Like Ron came in like halfway through the process. Uh-huh. And so what we wound up doing for the rhythm section is once we had all the transcriptions done, uh, one of the tricks is, uh, you know, it's live music and it's good. So the tempos don't hold. Yeah. Like, you know, Jimmy Cobb and Paul Chambers like rush and drag a lot in various places. Sure. So we tried like programming a click track like beat by beat through the entire record, you know, so that we could like play to that click. But that, that would follow that would follow the m- motion. Yeah. So Impressive. like following the original beat yeah. by beat. That okay. Took, that took a long time. I can imagine that. Yeah. yeah. So we did that, and then we tried playing with that, and that didn't really work because so much of the phrasing doesn't actually follow where the ictus of the beat is. Sure. So what we finally wound up doing was we had we're in the studio. 
we set up in the exact configuration because all kinds of pictures from that session. We set up exactly the same distance from each other at all the same angles with all the same microphones. And then we put on headphones and in the headphones we had each other plus the original recording plus the click. Okay. And the problem there was the original recording is out of tune. Yeah. And so we had to like record to that in order to get the tempos right and yeah, yeah, yada. So in our headphones, we were hearing a click track that kind of lines up with every beat, the original recording so that we could hear where one or more people was slightly off to the beat. Which is out of tune. Which is also out of tune on, on half the tracks. Okay. Only. And then hearing each other in real time. Yeah. So it was like super chaotic and dense and like difficult and that took like a bunch of sessions. Yeah. Uh, so then we had, unreal, honestly. Right. That's crazy. So then we had that done and then we left the setup and Peter and John came into the studio with like, because while we were recording the rhythm section, we also had the horn mics set up and live because there's going to be so you can hear the Right. Right. So then we had John and Peter come in with all the other mics still on and in place. And they recorded their parts in the same room with the same configuration for the tenor parts and the trumpet parts. And then we, you know, flew in the alto parts from the other session and mixed them down. Because we were, the horn parts were always playing along with the original recording in their ear. Okay. Along with the rhythm section. So it works, yeah. Right. And it doesn't totally work. Uh, one of the best criticisms we got of that that was like, you know, uh, level-headed and nuanced uh, was Ethan Iverson. Okay who wrote a big blog post about it, and he was like, the biggest problem with it is it doesn't swing. And I was like, you're right. Interesting. And it's just because there's so many cooks in the kitchen that, like, the the way swing works is that there's this, like, agreed-upon center of the beat that then everyone is, like, smearing a little bit. Yeah. And because, especially Kevin and I, we're hearing so many simultaneous notes, it's not just the two of us playing. It's four people playing. And right. since we're kind of playing this weird game of cat and mouse, both with each other and with Jimmy Cobb and Paul Chambers, you know, very often, like, it doesn't lock up the way the original locks up. Like, because, you know, we're playing cat and mouse with them. And we're talking, like, you know, fractions of milliseconds in difference in attack. Sure. But, like, that's the difference between swinging and not swinging. Right. And so, like, the biggest tell, if you put it on, on the tracks that swing, so you're Freddie Freeloader and you're, you know, mainly Freddie Freeloader, uh, is it like, we don't swing very hard, if at all, at times, just yeah. because of the way we did the process. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like you've put yourself in as being experiments in that world. Like, that's something that you can get out of, all right, what does it mean if you try to recreate something exactly like what is swing? This is all has to do with being in the moment and being spontaneous, which you can't get if you've got a drum machine. You can't get if you're, right. you know, trying well, to stick you know, to the swing specifics is, yeah. and whatever. Yeah, swing is based on there's this, like, actually steady beat at the center that then everyone is ignoring, tactically ignoring, Yeah. so that things are a little ahead or a little behind by just the right amount <laughs> that's not really notatable right. and has to be felt. And when you're doing this, like, very elaborate studio setup, I mean, again, if we, you know, had spent another, like, several years on it, we probably would have been able to get it a little better. But, like, you got to draw a line in the sand <laughs> yeah, and be like, sounds like fuck it, that's as good as we can get I this. Mean, like, that's right. where we're at. You already went the distance right. on that. And so on the tunes that don't swing in that, in that way, so, like, Blue and Green and Flamenco Sketches, I think, are a lot more convincing mm -hmm. at, in our recreation 
because that tell isn't as prevalent. Sure. You know, like with those, I, I did a radio interview when it came out with Kurt Gottschalk, uh, and he was like, you know, playing, you know, A, being them on the radio, and he played Blue and Green, and I was like, through these headphones, like, I can't tell if this is us or them. That's pretty amazing. Like, because, you know, it's like, I, realistically, I've probably listened to that record more than any other human and right you get down into that thing where like you know you're listening to certain aspects of the sound it's like we all had the experience of like a being our version with the other version when we were doing mixes and being like man on this like it just doesn't like the piano just doesn't sound right and then like realizing we're listening to the original you know it's like (laughs) god damn it okay switch them again then i guess fuck you know like because when you when you're so far in there you just like you lose track of reality and like we stopped being able to tell which was which after a while when you're focusing in on, you know, getting the right reverb on the piano on this like one exposed note or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like, right. okay, play the original again. Okay. Now play ours. All right. Back again. All right. Cool. Yeah. Raise that up a little bit. Oh wait, they were switched. Like shit. I don't know. Like <laughs> just, just <laughs> leave, leave it how it is. You know? <laughs> Uh, it's a little bit like that. I mean, mixing anything to some degree, you listen to the stuff enough, you go, well, we need to bring up the highs in this place and then right. a little more reverb. Then after a while, it becomes mathematics anyway. I don't know how people do it. Exactly. You just well, you draw a line on the sand. People. Like, that is good enough. Yeah, like, cool. That's going to work. Gonna get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we had a lot of that. And that becomes really interesting. And then, like, kind of if it's a litmus test for everybody, um, the me litmus test is that the, the most interesting stuff – are all the stuff, all the things about it that we couldn't copy, and so okay, um, like what? So for the swing me, is well, one. Of well, them. The, the swing is a feel thing, mm-hmm. and that like gets to a core thing about like playing in a rhythm section and what playing in a rhythm section means, and how bass player and drummer's job is to reach a consensus, and like when that consensus gets met is where you get when things groove, and it just like. There's a uniform feel of how we are articulating both the beat and the swing and the subdivisions that is now agreed upon, and there's, you know, you get this flow. Yeah. That is a thing that, you know, when kind of jazz musicians criticized, like, 60s rock musicians, that was a valid criticism, where, like, if you have, like, a very square four-on-the-four beat and everyone's, like, trying to be really precise and it's just eighth notes, that doesn't groove, really. Sure. Um, so there's that, like... That's the minutia you can't copy. Mm-hmm. Like, I will never be Paul Chambers, and Kevin will never be Jimmy Cobb, and because we are not those humans, we will reach a different consensus. So when Kevin and I groove, there's a 0% chance it will ever be the same as those two guys. Sure. You know? Yeah. But we're going to try. Yeah. And as you get closer and closer, the differences get magnified. Because it's like it's so close that it's like the uncanny valley thing. Like it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, more yeah. wrong the closer it gets. Because <laughs> yeah. it brings out all that stuff where it's just like, right, like I don't know why, but like that note's wrong. It's yeah. like, but it's not wrong. Yeah. We and can see it's not wrong, but it sounds wrong. It sounds wrong. Yeah. And like the reason why it sounds wrong is music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so then we were having this conversation with Arabagon last night where, you know, John doesn't sound like Coltrane. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> and even when John is trying as hard as he fucking can to sound like Coltrane, so like he was playing on the same model saxophone cuz like I think it's like a Mark 6 or something and everybody's got a Mark 6 tenor, so that's not weird. Yeah. And then he like tracked down the same mouthpiece and that's not hard. Everybody's been copying Trains fucking mouthpiece I'm for sure, the last like yeah. 60 years, right? Um but it's just like look 
really close listening to Train's sound. Like, in a given note that Train plays, there's like a, a upper mid-range hole. Like, there's a frequency range that is just missing in Coltrane sound. And it's like, it gives him this, like, that hollowness uh-huh. that, like, we can all immediately recognize. Right, that's Train, we know what that is. Yeah. And, like, kind of really deeply listening to that is, like, there's this gap that, like, because of Coltrane's teeth and throat and tongue and pharynx. Sure. Those overtones don't come out of the horn. And he gets that, like, kind of, that Coltrane-y sound. Yeah. John doesn't have that. There's a gap in John's sound that's, like, lower in the frequency spectrum. And so we spent, you know, an entire day EQing John's tenor playing to, like, put the frequency, you know, amplify the frequencies in John's sound that are usually not there and then cut out the frequencies that are missing in train. And you still can't do it. Yeah. (laughs) Still doesn't sound like train. Um, Yeah. You know, and then same thing with Peter and, you know, Miles' thing, trying to copy the mouthpiece and, like, you know, yeah, like the all the articulation stuff. And it's just like you can't. So personal, right? For every, every and then it's like, right? That's why jazz is awesome. That's exactly like yeah. you listen to Miles because Miles plays one note, and no other trumpet player sounds like that. Yeah, you know, no nobody sounds like Train, and nobody sounds like Cannon. Yeah, you know, it's like, and that's the the thing that like we all try and cultivate, which is you want a personal sound, right? And that's really hard to do. And those three guys happen to be three of the most instantly identifiable sonic people in history. Yeah. Uh, and so to try really brings out, you know, it's like, that sounds like train, but not, Yeah. you know, and it's like, right. Because like it's missing train. Right. Exactly. You know, everything yeah, yeah, yeah. else is right. Yeah. It's just not train. Yeah. You know, and like, that sounds like miles, but like, uh, it's just not thin enough here and not thick enough there. And the Harmon mute just doesn't quite sound right. And it's like, right. Cause he's not miles. Right. You know? Yeah. And it's like, even if he'd, uh, had a heroin habit and kicked it and then like lost a bunch of weight and like, you know, messed up his voice box. Like it's still not miles. Yeah. It's like Peter with a fucked up voice and a former heroin habit. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Probably wouldn't be worth it. Probably I'm glad you didn't go it. the full distance <laughs> right, on right, that. Yeah. Recreating the album. Peter, right. I'm sorry to tell you, man, we're right. going to have to, yeah, uh, yeah. Gonna take we're going to have to go yeah, more. Yeah. In a different direction. Here's a syringe. Yeah. yeah right. Then you're going to need to go to a farm in Missouri to kick the habit. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Yeah. <laughs> but trust me, it'll work out. <laughs> So, yeah, but it, but it speaks to that the individual nature of the thing so well because I mean I always make the comparison like or or the or the point like you listen to Coltrane play Body and Soul you can hear in an instant it's going to be different than Coleman Hawkins playing Body and Soul right. but you guys are literally trying to create the exact same thing and you still can't do it right. which really does it speaks to how cool the whole thing is that you're you know it's a, it's everyone in an ideal circumstance is instantly identifiable or has their own personality and that can't be reproduced regardless. right and like and those are the things that. I, anyway, this is my own litmus test. Those are the things that I find most interesting about music generally. Yeah. You know, it's like, now that we have conservatories churning out, like, you know, super trained musicians all day, like, notes are fairly, everybody can play a bunch of notes. We can all play the same notes if we want to, so that doesn't matter. And, like, now tons and tons of people can, like, convincingly swing. Whereas, like, you know, we were talking earlier this morning about how, like, these Blue Note records from the 60s, man, it's like, all the same guys. It's like, oh, right. There were only like 30 people on earth that could do that. <laughs> and they all lived here. And even, I was, you know, we're talking about like, you know, personalities and like McCoy Tyner, who's this very like soft spoken, gentle, you know, you don't hear stories about him being like a drunk, drug addict, womanizing guy. And here yeah. he is on a record with Lee Morgan, who like just got his teeth kicked out by a drug dealer. Right. So like, I can't imagine those guys being super tight. Maybe they were, but like, 
if you, if Freddie Hubbard's busy, it's Lee Morgan. <laughs> and right. Like, yeah. Because Woody Shaw's not old enough yet. Yeah. And like, yeah. that's it. Like, there is no other trumpet player around that could like do that gig. Sure. You know, because it's like right. Like in this world, there's like four people that can do this. And now we could probably get on our phones and find 400 trumpet players that could convincingly play some like 1960s hard bop. Yeah. For sure. You know? Yeah, yeah And, yeah. like, I could find 400 bass players that could do what, like, Ron Carter does on that record. You know, like, competently well. And yeah. And so, like, that being, like, a huge difference. So, now that we can all play whatever notes we want to play and we can all swing, it's just, like, none of that is, like, what makes music on a core level kind of interesting. It's, like, all these little non-notatable nuances that we all bring in that's, like, you know, even taking, like, modern people, like, we were listening to, like, some chris potter the other night it's like nobody sounds like that you know like he's maybe shreddier than most people but like a chris potter shredding solo and a michael brecker shredding solo are equally shredding yeah but they do not sound anything alike right you know, exactly like, those yeah. people have like totally different sounds and they'll you know, bring in like mark shim you know like totally different thing and like you know whoever else yeah, yeah and that's the ideal right and so yeah. it's like you know you're trying to get to a point where those are the things that matter. And I think that, like, for me anyway, the kind of blue thing is, like, that's what is front and center. Like, yeah. the things that are different between this and the original are the things that actually matter. And we can all transcribe a bunch of notes, but, like, that's not really music. Sure. Like, all the other stuff is what actually matters, but nobody talks about that. You know, it's like, when we talk about, like, transcribing notes and, like, what pentatonic, like, we're playing. Yeah, like, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you find that people responded to that the way that you expected them to respond to the album? Like, did you have any well, expectations or were you trying to like troll people kind of or like, no, or did you have... well, cause we got, there were just as many like positive responses and negative responses. And the thing that was interesting is like everybody has their own take. Yeah. Um, and so the only kind of shocking response, and I said this at the time in a bunch of interviews and I'll kind of, I'll say it forever. I was blown away by how many offended people were offended because they thought we were doing it for money. Interesting. Like, oh, right, this is just like, you know, a bunch of like, you know, white kids, and I don't know what Aravagon is, to like, you know, <laughs> make a bunch of money like ripping off the masters. And it's like, do you have any idea how the economy works now? Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> I'm, I spent so much money making that, like, there's a, I won't even get within $10,000 close to making my money back. Yeah, like, right. I right, lost yeah. 20 grand making that record that I will never, like I would have to sell, you know, millions of copies, which I won't do. Right. Like nobody's selling millions. Of copies no one's. Yeah. Like, you know, we sold like 2000 copies of that. Yeah. Which made back 15% right. <laughs> of the money I put in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah. like, people don't realize that at all. About people don't realize that right. because You're, you think like, well, kind of blue has made millions and millions and millions of dollars. It's yeah. like many times platinum record. Like, right. You forget that like, a, that doesn't happen to anybody else. Correct. Yeah, you know, except for maybe now, like, a Love Supreme and, like, two or three other records. Yeah, that um, are old, that are, yeah, right, I that guess. Have been Even in, then, that have been that, in print for decades. Right, but you can't sell, I mean, nobody's buying Nobody buys CDs anymore. Right. Period. Um, and then kind of, like, assuming that that would be a motivation to do something like that. was That was shocking. So, like, when people were just like, oh, yeah, this is, like, clearly about money, like, that's messed up. Yeah. It's just like, there are lots of avenues to criticize this that I'm very open to taking criticism <laughs> yeah. to. But it's like, to think that I'm doing this for money like actually kind of pisses me off. Because sure. it's just like, that is not what's happening here. Right. So be as mad as you want. 
I'm totally cool with that. That's kind of part of the point. Not the entire point, but like... You have to you be know, open if, to that. That's if, what art is. Right, That's what art's all If this about. makes you mad, I hope that you think about why. Right. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like, and because that would be a really interesting vein to mine. Yeah. Um. So, you know, so I was totally cool with all that. But like the whole, you think I'm making money is like... You're just wrong. Right. You sure. know, so it's like, also insulting if you do spend, if you're looking at your bank account, you're like, right. No. Yeah, like I, I spent years and dropped like, you know, we have like an entire years worth of recording sessions we didn't even use that I paid for. Right. Never you mind know. the amount of time. Time and, and money. Yeah, it's like, I will never make that money back. You yeah. Know, like ever. Sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a really, really expensive joke. You right. Know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And like, and you know, and that's great. Um, and you know, if it was just a really expensive joke, we wouldn't have done it. But it was like, no, but it's, it was but a really a expensive piece of art yeah. that was designed to get people to think about music, which it did. Right. It it, it reminded me not in not in form at all, but it, it, when uh, I remember being in maybe late high school, early college, and I was really into Dadaism, and but I, but I didn't. I recognized that if you draw a mustache on a postcard of the Mona Lisa or you draw like some initials on a urinal, right. that's not the same thing as, uh, you know, carving a statue out of marble or whatever, but I sort of liked them the same. Right. And I always said to myself, like, what is it about this that is so compelling to me? And what I realized is it's the question itself. It's like the way that you interpret it. It's, is this art or what even right. is this? And discuss. Yeah. You know. And that's the cool thing. I mean, that's what makes something art and not just because... You know, people, as an example, like, people take photographs all the time. I was thinking about it. I was like, what's the difference between just any idiot with a camera taking a picture of a whatever and a, an art? You know, where sometimes you see a photograph and you're like, okay, that's art. I get it. But it's it has to do with the interpretation of the person who's viewing the thing. All kinds. Yeah. All those externalities. And, uh, yeah, because that's where, you know, one of the things about it was like, right, so if I, you know, play this on the radio and somebody can't tell the difference because, you know, they're not, like, hyper attuned to those differences, like, does that make them an idiot? You know, like, it's not a trick. It's just, like, sound art does weird stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is a... There are enough weird angles that you can approach this, kind of infinite weird angles you can approach this, and, like, project your stuff onto it that makes it interesting. Sure. So, I also, like, I remember one of the... In in the melee happening when that record came out, uh, Rachel Z just, like, cold-called me. Basically being like, you know, why did you do this? And, you know, I didn't know her, but, like, yeah. she just wanted to talk about it. And, like, she and, like, she'd been talking to, like, Lenny White or somebody. And, like, you know, they were just like, yeah, it's, you know, like, they kind of wanted to, they thought that they knew what we were doing, but kind of wanted to check. Yeah. Uh, and then her whole, then, you know, she kind of got on her soapbox. She was, like, a little offended. It's fine. Um, and her angle, which I thought was, was something I'd never even thought of, mm-hmm. she's really huge on, like, apprenticeship. Okay. And so, like, you know, she apprenticed with Wayne and, you know, Lenny White apprenticing with Miles and, like, stuff, blah, blah, blah. And that as being this, like, you can go to school for jazz, but if this is this oral tradition, the apprenticeship model is, like, very different in jazz than it is in other forms of music. Mm-hmm. And this, like, transmitting uh, knowledge from one generation to another person to person. Yeah. And a lot of that in the jazz academy is, like, lost. Sure. You know, so now you can go to the university of whatever and major in jazz and study with a bunch of people that have PhDs that like, you know, never made noteworthy recordings and kind of like graduate and become a professional musician having never apprenticed. Yeah. Okay. But then she's like, and so in a way, like recordings become the, the masters with which you, with whom you apprentice. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, we can't apprentice with Miles and Train and 
Cannonball, right. but we can apprentice with this record. Uh-huh. And so her whole thing was that like she viewed it as this like, you know, document about like the loss of apprenticeship and like that we're these like young musicians like floundering and like we can't get the thing that we need, so we find it in this like weird backwards like way. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, sure. <laughs> you know, like that's a great take. Yeah. Like, no, but I don't know. Cool. Sure. Yeah, but, yeah, like, yeah. That is your thing. Sure. Run with that. And I, that was like a really great conversation just because it was like, right, yeah, I, I don't think about that at all because I was lucky enough to get to apprentice with people. Sure. Um, like during and after college. Mm-hmm. And, but like, oh, right, like not everybody gets that chance. And that is like, I did learn as much or more playing in older musicians' bands as I did being in college. Sure. And so yeah. it's like, all right, yeah, I totally see your point. I would definitely not be where I am today had I not been apprenticed by 50, 60, 70-year-old jazz masters when I was, like, 20. Yeah. You know, and, like, I, you know, and that's an interesting point, but that was not something I was thinking about at all because that's, like, not my angle. Right. But it's like, ah, that is your angle. Yeah. <laughs> like, now I know how your brain works. Yeah. Like, but, again, it's a reflection on each individual, whatever they take from that right. experience. Right. And that's, like, that's what she took from it. And I yeah. thought that, that, and that was, like, one of the first, like, oh, right, everybody's going to have their own take. It's yeah. Cool. Right. You it know works. what? Yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's interesting because it seems like that record is a complete departure from the other stuff that you that oh, you totally. did. Yeah. But at the same time, it's totally in line with the philosophy of all right, we're going to name these after towns in Philadelphia and let people fill in the gaps as they are. Like it seems to all like everything you're doing seems to have that. Uh, all right, you can interpret this in your own way. You can reflect on this however you want, and that falls in line with that completely, even though it's a completely different approach there's another angle that i had not considered <laughs> even like six years later so yeah no i totally agree with that i didn't never thought about that at all but yeah that's a really good point um yeah it is essentially the same thing uh in that way cool nice yeah yeah <laughs> there's yeah. the bobby angle there you go that's a really good one yeah like that's that's not one that i've talked about before so yeah that's really sure. good um and yeah, I think that like that was another kind of like Ethan Iverson signing off was it was just like right this is like not really jazz it's like conceptual art yeah and it's a piece of like jazz conceptual art so you know you're not gonna listen to this to like hear it like no one should ever like listen to that for <laughs> like because they want to listen to that you should listen to fucking kind of blue it's better but it exists to like be heard as this other thing in the same way that like, you know, Duchamp's urinal exists to like force you to reconsider how sculpture works. Right. You know, it's like, here's a smooth marble surface that is very well crafted, you know, much like Michelangelo's David. Yeah. Exactly. Right. (laughs) You know, know, like, is it different? How? Oh, do go on. Yeah. (laughs) You know, know, if I'm an alien, that's some white rock, and that's some white rock, and they're both smooth and shiny. Yeah. Like, next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like, oh, they're different. Cool. How? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay. so, yeah, I mean, it still happens, you know, like, every place I go, like, I get into this conversation, it's great, and people want to talk about it, and, like, hopefully that will be, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that being, like, my legacy, uh, as many people have pointed out, like, you know, you're going to be the kind of blue guy now, like forever. <laughs> and it's like, cool. Like, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. Well, like, it was just a part of it, you right. know, but, you it's... know, hopefully they hear some other music I made, but maybe not. Like, yeah. You know, 
Uh, have you found that people have gone from that? Like, has that uh, sent people in the direction of the other? Of the other? I don't music? know. I mean, if you're the kind of person that hears the kind of blue thing and like thinks we're like a normal jazz band, and then like you know puts on Shemokin, you're gonna be very confused. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of part of the thing. I was surprised. I was like, man, I can't believe we got Kevin Shade to you know manage to stick to you know like tame. T- you know, of, of everybody in the band, like Kevin had to go the farthest. I almost was just waiting. You know, you listen. Yeah, to yeah, you're waiting, waiting for Kevin for to do Kevin. Yeah, and it's yeah. like he he doesn't get to yeah <laughs> he was super uncomfortable <laughs> yeah uh That's but yeah funny. it's just like yeah for, for people that know kevin's playing hearing kevin do that is like unbelievably shocking yeah, yeah I think, I think uh, even more shocking than his playing i think it's way more shocking than any anything else about that record is like kevin playing fairly evenly displaced quarter notes like yeah that never happens yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it speaks to the point that you're you're that it, that people in the group are able to switch back and forth or right. have that full vocabulary or right. whatever yeah, yeah. I mean, Kevin's virtuosity is insane. Yeah, and he is violently philosophically opposed to playing straight time. Is that right? For ways that he will expound at length. Uh, um, I'll ask him about it. So right. Time, so 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 forcing him to do that made him very uncomfortable. <laughs> but he was on board with like the larger thing, and you know, kind of grumblingly like he's you know his transcriptions are like ridiculously detailed sure you know page after page after page of like jimmy cobb time with like feathered triplets like meticulously notated it's, it yeah. was nuts i mean like you know you'd have nine sheets of music paper like taped together on like four stands in front of him that he's like reading off of yeah it's bananas but it's like wild. looking at it, it's like yeah yeah that's just, that is exactly what jimmy cobb plays right there right like you know you nailed it wow also in fun facts jimmy cobb had a four-piece drum set set up in the studio he plays the floor tom once and the rack tom zero times <laughs> on kind of blue. <laughs> like, so they set it up and mic'd it. He never played the rack tom. That's funny. Yeah. Huh? On that entire record. Could be, you might want that little resonance from the whatever. Apparently, yeah. Well, it, we, it was there. Yeah. Like, you know, we actually had the exact same drum set. So we got like the same model drum set. Oh, wow. So yeah, we matched the cymbals. It's there. Yeah. He doesn't play it. That's funny. It's great. I want to go back and listen to find that one floor tom. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's great. It's, you know, when he does it, it's real obvious. But it's like, you know, all the fills and chatter are like snare drum stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Which is killer. I mean, yeah. it's like the Jimmy Cobb sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these days you're doing mostly trio. Is it most is of it all people trio with most of the other trio. people yeah, going? Because right. now you have the other groups you're, you're doing just going off in different directions. Other bands to do other and, stuff. Most yeah. of the people is a trio with me and Kevin and Ron Stavinsky. Yeah. And that was the last record. Paint, that uh, was the last record. Paint. Paint. Yeah. And that was a, sort of, that's sort of like a... Almost like a, as a concept, that's kind of a straight ahead trio, a modern piano, jazz trio, trio record. record, right? Taken in your own directions, right? And so I wrote a bunch of that was when I was trying to very definitively write like post bop tunes, but like now I've got a piano, yeah. So chords with extensions and that whole thing, sure. Um, and I think as a record, I'm pretty happy with that. Only again, like only one or two tunes from that record has made it into the live book that uh-huh. we like will go into, but that record does, you know. it's Kind of like the fourth or fifth in that like series of concept records. Yeah, um, and that's what you were thinking about is yeah. the piano. It's like, all right, this is going to be like a a long lost early seventies you know modern jazz piano trio record that you know never got made. Yeah, you know, right. sure. Yeah, and uh, it was and that was the that was the trajectory for doing the trio now, or you do the, it was that that right. uh, that concept. Right. So it was kind of like the the original quartet you know went for a while then we kind of added ron and then we were kind of ron was in and out of the band depending on the project mm-hmm. you know post kind of blue then we had like the seven piece version of the band and that was what was touring for a while and then 
Peter left the band just because, and the band has like a lot of like, you know, notoriety, infamy, baggage. And Peter in his career was trying to like distance himself from that baggage in a way that like, you know, he wanted to like not play in that, in the band. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after living with that guy and like, you know, closest friends for 20 years. So it's like, right. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, And so, Steve Bernstein stepped in to play, and he was the perfect sub for the seven-piece band, 1920s and 30s stuff. Yep. That's the guy. Um, so that was fine. And then the small group then became a quartet with Piano and John, and then John kind of felt similarly. was like, right, like I don't want to play in this version of the band anymore. So then John was only playing in the seven-piece, and now you know John is not playing with that either because now Brian is. Um, and it kind of – then it was like, all right, so I guess now we're a trio – what would be, this is like, you know, now I've got totally different vocabulary to play with. Yeah. So I was like, all right, now I'm going to write a trio record. And so that was very kind of like newly motivating because it like changed the parts. Mm-hmm. And like between the Smooth Jazz record and the Seven Beast Band, I've been trying to do that in a bunch of different ways. And then like changing the instrumentation is another way to, to do that. Sure. So yeah. rather than finding a replacement saxophone player or finding a you know small group replacement trumpet player, it was like, no, 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 no. I've already done that thing. Yeah. Now let's do this trio and see where the trio goes. Yeah. And so in the tours with the trio, you know, all kinds of new versions of the same thing have now opened up because Ron can do anything. And uh, it kind of allows there to be more space for me to do more things because in the quartet version, I kind of did some Ron Cartery. I'm the one that's the most staying home. Yeah. And let everything else kind of swirl around. Uh, and then when I didn't do that, it was very, like, jarring, which sure, good trick. But yeah. now, with the trio, I have a lot more room to, like, not just be bass player bass player. And so it's opened up, like, more new doors now that it's a trio. Sure. So we're going to record a new trio record next month. Oh, cool. Uh, of the Disaster Tunes. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, and so looking forward to that. And so like, I have, like, a new book of tunes that are kind of getting back to you know, pretty bluesy and pretty melodically and harmonically simple um, so that we can go in and out of sections and do our thing mm-hmm. and then doing, like, other arrangements of those tunes that don't do that. Kind of trying to write really malleable sure. songs at this point. Yep. Uh, and that's been, like, since, I don't know, the summer-ish? Like, starting last summer, it was like, all right, writing this new book of tunes, they're going to be, you know, getting back to the melodic and harmonic, you know, classic jazz simplicity so that then I can give them to different bands to play and we can, you know, explore more of the trio version of jumping in and out of things that are very comfortable. Sure. Uh, which has been really fun. Like, uh, the, the recent gigs have been really fun. Uh, the interplay between the trio is really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I can do, with the straight-ahead quintet versions of that, I'll probably write, you know, versions of some of those things for the nine-piece band and maybe for the seven-piece band and just kind of, like, you know, use the same material in different ways. Yeah. And you, I imagine you learn something about how the tunes work in each individual context as right. you play them with different groups. Right. So even, you know, like last month, you know, like when, when the trio plays some of those songs, it's a completely different version than when, you know, like a two-horn quintet plays those songs. And yeah. Like different parts of the tune become the core thing, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, that's been interesting to check out. Yeah. yeah. How much do you tour? Like when Less you re- now, release I, an album. Yeah, I always hated them. touring. I don't like it. Uh, it's, it's a drag. It's, it's a drag, a drag man. 
And I kind of came to that conclusion back in like 2003, where uh, after college, I'd been like kind of playing full time. And then I moved here and was playing full time. And the touring part and even just like the day to day hustling for gigs that I didn't really want to play or like, you know, having to do like wedding band stuff or like, you know, standards in a restaurant for a bunch of money but like it's you know no one's paying any attention and like the music's not very good i was like i don't need this this is making me dark yeah so that's why i think a lot of people get many people but i think i got darker faster than most uh and so i was like i need to not do this so i started teaching instead and then i only like play with my own bands or things that you know with friends and friends projects that i like enjoy yeah Um, it gives you the flexibility to choose whatever you want to do right and And then right and then most of the people kind of won the jazz lottery like 10 years ago where, you know, we just like there's 40 or 50 bands in New York that are, you know, just as good as we were. I was in some of them, but for whatever reason, uh, probably partly personnel and then partly just like sheer luck, we got to go to some European festivals and some people at European festivals heard us and were like, we want you to do tours. So for like, you know, a good six or seven years, we were whenever I had a break in school, we would go do like a, you know, nine day tour in, in Europe. So we'd like, you know, take a week in the fall and then a week in February and then a week in April. And so we were doing like, and then summer festivals. Mm -hmm. And so like 2009 to like 2015 or 14, that was like, you know, three tours. And like every one of those tours, it'd get to be like Wednesday. And I would just like hate it. And like, we found ways to like, you know, make it fun and like, as a result, it was like a lot of energy went into making sure that it was fun. Yeah. And then kind of like in touring with other bands that that isn't the case, it became more and more evident that like, okay, this is like probably as good as touring is going to get. Like, you know, 2011, 12, 13 were like super heavy years and we were like having a great time and like doing this whole thing. But it was like, man, I would not do this with like another band and this is only fun because we're doing like going out of our way to do stupid crap every town we're in. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so kind of over the years, I was just like, yeah, I don't really like the touring part. Yeah. And uh, kind of over the last couple of years, I just like I'm doing it less. And so, yeah, when, when, when we did paint, I didn't go out of my way to try and tour with that really at all. Like, we did some stuff here in the States, but, like, very just, like, easy, and uh, and that was that. And, like, you know, we'll still go over and play, like, festivals from time to time. But even that, like, the sending out all the emails to make that stuff happen, it's just like, ah, this sucks. Like, I don't, you know, I don't need this. Yeah. Um, so I'll probably do, I'm, I'm going to do some of that because I do like performing. Mm-hmm. But I do, I'm very comfortable not doing as much of that as I used to. Sure. And kind of, I, I don't have this, oh man, I gotta work really hard and put out some stuff that's like, you know, gets a bunch of press so that I can like get a bunch of, it's like, no, nah, I'm just gonna do whatever I'm gonna do and if I, you know, do a tour a year, that'll be great. Sure. And like, even that, I'll be like kind of dark about having to like put together but like, I can, that's about where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sure. test wise. So we did like a couple of, like a short thing in Europe this summer, uh, I guess like, in the last year, there was, like, one or two other, you know, festival things, and, like, that's plenty. I'm not going to hustle for that. I'm perfectly fine kind of doing stuff here in the Northeast, and then when an album comes out, trying to get, like, a festival or two, and, like, that'll be plenty. 
Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, I only got to do that in the first place, you know, through luck, you know. Well, what does that mean? Like, what was the foundation? Like, did you seek it? You didn't seek it out. I mean, like, how did you out. fall like, into We were just, like, world. doing what we did. I was, like, booking tours in the States where we'd just, like, you know, play Philly and Pittsburgh and Chicago and Cleveland. And, like, you know, that was going for, like, years. Mm-hmm. And then we got an invite to a festival in Europe in summer, like, spring 09. And that was, like, the first, like, overseas gig we did. We did one gig and then some kind of, like, associated workshops and stuff. And a bunch of people were at that festival who then, like, booked tours for the band, you know, going forward. And that was all right around the time that, like, 40 Fort had just come out and we were working on the Smooth Jazz record. And then the Smooth Jazz record came out and was, like, weird enough that part of the way you get to tour is, like, through having these, like, novel concepty things. And so that happened, and there were, like, two years of touring with that, and then the kind of blue thing happened, and we obviously weren't going to tour with that, but, yeah. you know, that, like, led <laughs> yeah. to a whole bunch of, like, okay, so we toured uh, playing our normal music, and then the seven-piece happened, and festivals wanted to have the seven-piece, so that happened a little bit, and I was, you know, then it becomes the game where it's like, all right, am I going to, like, every two years try and come up with some, like, marketable novel thing which is like the paradigm where once you're a little bit established which is pretty much luck it's like you know the dave douglas paradigm where it's like every two years you form a new band and you write a bunch of new music and then you tour that and then everybody who wants that is over and while you're touring that you're coming up with a totally new band and a totally new concept and you record that record and then you tour that record and you do that until you die yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's like I was just like, ah, oh, it sounds miserable. Like I just want to make the music I want to make. Yeah. So I'm, um, you know, I thought about that for a while, being like, all right, trio, should I do like a tribute record and like you know, play a bunch of like covers, like Horace Silver tribute record or something? Just like, yeah, if we did that, we could like market it, and then we like go play all these festivals. Is this like, cause like, look at the roster of a festival. And, like, how many of those bands are, like, tribute to so-and-so or so-and-so plays the music of so-and-so? And it's just, like, I don't want to do that. Sure. Like, it sounds like hell. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, like, well, I see how the game works. So I either continue doing this, coming up with a new band every couple of years and, like, you know, touring it. And, I, you know, kind of, frankly, that's what happened this summer. Like, I put out the rock band record and a bunch of people were, like, oh, you have a new project. Come play at our festival. It's just, like, yeah, but I want to keep playing with this rock band for the next, like, 10 years like it's not going to be a novelty yeah you know sure so i'm not going to like all right cool what's the next like that toured scrap it next band like I don't that's do interesting that. in jazz world though because in rock rock world or whatever you could play the same songs for your, you know sort of i mean you could put, put out new albums or whatever, right but, but that's like, it feels like a different thing like, i mean if i want to get real cynical i think it has to do with like there isn't all that much money in the jazz world in the first place mm-hmm. and the people that are in it you know, I, a friend of a friend, eh, a friend, once said, like, right, there are about five or 6,000 people total on Earth that actually know and care about anything we do. And that is not enough people to, like, generate an audience or make a living. Sure. So it's like the way you have to do it is, like, playing at venues and festivals where the majority of the audience doesn't actually know or care about what you're doing. They're just there to hear some jazz you know, cool. Yeah. And so the only way you're going to do that is by enticing them somehow, either with some kind of like, uh, understandable program. Like I'm writing music about global warming. 
and then someone's like, you know, doesn't really, like, kind of likes jazz and, like, you know, knows Miles Davis and a certain kind of blue. And it's like, ah, some jazz music about global warming. Let's go check that out. But, like, you know, you could, the tunes could be about towns in Pennsylvania. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. So you're going to see jazz. Band. And so yeah, right. you either, like, deliberately do some kind of gimmick. Yeah. Or you do tributes to people that people already know. You know, like so-and-so plays the music of Miles Davis or so-and-so plays the music of so-and-so for like ever and ever and ever. And then, you know, not particularly engaged but still jazz festival going public is like, ah, I know who Miles Davis is. I'll go check out that band. Sure. And so either one of those is like really cynical. Maybe. You know, unless you genuinely genuinely want to do that, in which case more power to you and that's great. Right. That's its own thing. Right. So it's like if you are, and I'm not going to think of like a good example, but there are plenty of our peers who are like super invested in the music of so-and-so and and that is what they want to do. Yeah. And then they go around playing the music of so-and-so and and it's great. And like, I don't want to do that, but if you want to do that. Sure. That is awesome. Yeah. Uh, but I just, I don't want to do that. Yeah, and you've lifted yourself out of, uh, of following any kind of a path right. in it's that like, regard. I you have do whatever always, it is right, you want to do. I've always just wanted to do the thing that I want to do. And yeah. I got really lucky that for a while, there was like, because of its novelty, there was like enough of buzz and audience about that, that we got to do all those gigs. Yeah. But, you know, at no point did I think about like, oh, if I put out a... <laughs> If I put out a fake bullshit smooth jazz record, people are going to love that shit and I'm going to get more gigs. <laughs> you know, like, said no one ever. Right, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Or, oh, I totally got it. I'm going to do some, like, avant-garde 1920s stuff with Brandon Seabrook and a tape recorder, like, you know, making squonky noises. This yeah. is going to be great. It'll be yeah. huge. <laughs> you know, like, um, but that's kind of like, you know, what everybody's kind of under the pressure to do from John Zorn on down, actually. Like, over the summer, like, Zorn was touring with, like, his Bagatelles thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, Zorn wrote a whole new book of music. And he's well enough known that, like, cool, we're going to bring you doing your whole new book of music because this is not just the same old John Zorn. Whereas, you know, I don't know if, unfortunately, Zorn probably wouldn't be able to just, like, tour in perpetuity with Masada. Yeah. You know? Like, just after you've played every festival, you know, John Q Festival Going Public is going to be like, yeah, I've already seen that. It's like, oh, but they're playing completely different music. It's like, eh, I've seen that band. You know, and so it's like, you need that in the jazz world because it is fairly esoteric and the audience is fairly small that understands what they're hearing. You need a way to appeal to like a larger group. And so you get stuff like, and this is in no way pejorative, the bad plus who are great, Mm -hmm. but it's like, there are a bunch of people that genuinely want to play kind of like indie rock as a piano trio. There's a massive market for that. That works out really well for Dave King. Sure. Who is a beautiful human. And like, that's great. great. And I think that's awesome. I don't want to do that. Sure. But that is like exactly that. They're doing exactly the thing that they want to do. And it happens to be like, you know, they play a Nirvana cover and like the non jazz invested public really likes that because it's like recognizable as a Nirvana cover, but now it's a piano trio. Yeah. Great. Like, I don't want to do a record of Nirvana covers. Sure. You know, I, yeah. I'm glad that they do, and I like hearing it. Or like, you know, yeah. VJI are doing, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, MIA. Uh-huh. I happen to love that arrangement. And like, I love me some MIA, and I love me some VJI. But it's like, I don't have any desire to do that thing. Sure. Um, and so, everybody is kind of forced to contend with the, if you're going to tour for a living... You need to find a way to like constantly have like a new thing uh, in order to like make that like viable. Uh, and that's like 
a part of the hustle that I just like have no desire to do. So it's like, I'm going to just keep doing the thing that I want to do. And if every once in a while, it's a thing that like gets me some gigs, that's great. Yeah. But I'm not going to kind of, you know, having thought about it, like if I was going to do a tribute record, I would do a Sam Jones tribute record. Like that's my favorite bass player. He wrote some pretty interesting tunes. He doesn't get enough credit. Yeah. But like, you know, I wrote a bunch of arrangements. I was like, all right, maybe the trio version of most of the other people do the killing is going to do this like Sam Jones tribute. But I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, you know, yeah. and like, I don't want to do to Sam Jones tunes what we would do to Sam Jones tunes. Right. <laughs> you know, like, that's not the thing either. So yeah. it's just like, I'm not going to do like a most of the other people do the killing plays the music of Sam Jones. And if I eventually do do that, it'll be because I finally got into a spot where I like found a way that like, okay, I'm going to do it this way. Yeah. But, you know us playing a bunch of his tunes the way we play his tunes doesn't open any new doors. Sure. You know, and all it does is like, all right, here's like a marketable thing that's kind of disingenuous. Yeah. For me. Yeah. So it's just like, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just, you know, maybe I'll get around to do that because like I've been thinking about that for a really long time, but now is not the time that I want to do that. And if I do do it, it'll be because like I've decided this is a thing I really want to do. Right. And I probably won't get any gigs and it won't matter. Like, yeah, you know, it seems like kind of an ideal mentality, though. One and two, it's, if you're it's, not trying to make money, it yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> well, if you have the underlying thing, right? Yeah, if you can teach or you or right. whatever you happen it's to the, do, it's the, the the Charles Ives model. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like when you're I, when you're making music that's not going to make you a living, do something else for a living so that you can keep doing the weird ass music you want to do. Yeah, Ives is. I mean, he was amazing because he was also famous sold in the insurance <laughs> right, yeah. world. Dude like, did he, not make any money off of his music in his lifetime. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm very comfortable with that being the thing. You know having made that decision a long time ago, but I also recognize that like lots of my friends are trying to make a living as musicians. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those frustrations arise out of the idea that you can make a spectacular record and nobody's going to care sure. in, in a global economic sense, you know? And so I, I have like multiple friends who work super hard and make the music they want to make and like try and hustle and get the tours and are constantly frustrated because it's super frustrating and like it doesn't take off and you know but, but this record's really good it's like well yeah it is but it's just a really good record there's lots of those and if there's no like gimmick unfortunately um you know at, like the north sea jazz festival when there's like 20 concerts happening simultaneously and like you know somebody doesn't really know a whole lot about jazz is looking down the list and they just see random names they don't know like they're not going to come check it out even if it's the best thing on the festival sure they're going to go see like the john mclaughlin tribute band yeah you know or they're going to go see the miles davis tribute band or they're going to go see like this name that i've heard of who played with miles davis you know which is great but yeah. it's like that doesn't kind of create long-term economic viability unless you're kind of constantly having like a new thing so right. it's like if you're dave douglas here's my new band and dave douglas is awesome and he's had dozens of great bands over the years but it's like you know tiny bell trio doesn't play anymore sure you know or and even if it did it's like well yeah we already heard that band like where's your next band you know yeah. you need like this kind of like novelty thing which sure. can be difficult uh yeah. if you're trying to do that for a living right you know, sure because then there's pressure on you to do that yeah um, and then frustration that like, Hey, I've got this great band we've been playing for 10 years and here's our new record and you don't get as many gigs this time as you did last time because it's like, well, right. Yeah, well, we had you last year and you know, you're doing the same thing. Like we want something different because yeah. we're trying to get people to come to the club who won't normally come to the club or the festival. And like the way that you do that is with like, you know, 
this is this brand new thing. Come see this brand new thing. No one's ever heard it before. Yeah. Um, which I get, but like, that's kind of like the economic reality. Of course. Yeah. Um, so right. So I feel like I got really lucky that like the weird ass thing that I was trying to do happened to be a thing that other people wanted to hear for a while, but I kind of like being inside that game and seeing how it works. Uh, I was like, I, I don't have any, I, any intention to kind of tr- intentionally try and play the game. Yeah. You know, like while working on this thing, coming up with the next thing, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you can get out of that entirely, you can, in many ways, be you can. most and there yourself. Are, right, and there are a handful of people that do that. Um, but it's it's not, like, large-scale viable. Like, you know, all of us can't do that. You know, and so, like, thinking about the people who've been able to do that, it's, you know, like Ambrose or Mary mm-hmm. or... Uh, I mean, those are like the two examples that are like, you know, my peers that are like the most able to do that. Yeah. And they both have novelty about them. Like Ambrose won the monk competition and Ambrose has like fairly interesting ideas about straight ahead jazz in general. And he's like a complete virtuosic monster. And even he's like new project, new project, new project. Here's my new thing. Here's my new thing. Yeah. You know, and, Mary, as, like, the only guitar player who sounds like that in the world, is still, here's my new band, here's my new band. You know, it's still a new band. Like, she's still not, she's not just touring with that, that trio that, like, was a thing ten years ago. Sure. And, you know, that's kind of the paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, if those are kind of, like, the two most high profile of the people my age, um, like, the way they're doing it is kind of constantly reinventing themselves a little bit context-wise. Yeah, like, like here's now I'm gonna do my thing with this new band. I'm gonna do that for a little bit. And now I'm gonna do this new band, and you know, that's how you maintain the kind of constant touring presence, which is kind of the same thing that like Dave Douglas does, and kind of the same thing that like Steve Coleman does, you know, for decades sure. and decades. Yeah, um, and it can be like fairly exhausting, and there aren't that many slots for that. Yeah, you know, it's like there's yeah, only a few yeah. people that can like get to that spot. Sure. Um, and yeah, I just kind of don't want to, never wanted to play that game, um, given that like I'm fine playing at like you know a basement on Tomkins Square Park for like twenty of my friends. Yeah, fine. Like I'm good with that, uh, and like doing whatever weird Pennsylvania crap I want to do. Sure, you know yeah. <laughs> the music doesn't change. Right. You yeah. Do whether you're playing for whoever, right. whoever, it's the same. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like at least that's like the kind of like the way I've like approached the thing for you know the last I don't know. 17 or however many years it is yeah right yeah Yeah. cool well to wrap it up if people want to find where you're playing or what you're doing where do they uh i don't social media so don't look for that although uh there is a mostly other people do the killing facebook page that kevin updates when we have a gig okay uh so but like we're about to record and we don't have anything on the books uh i will you know usually post stuff uh online and like i'm i'm pretty good about like you know, contacting the various publications that, like, you know, you're all about jazz or your websites that, like, here, here's where we're playing. So, sure. You know, when we're playing in New York, it usually is known. And then if we're going to do a tour, I'll post that online. But that's not going to be for a while. Just because, like, right now I'm in the midst of, like, writing and recording new stuff. So, I mean, I've been talking about, like, at some point in the next, like, week or two, I'm going to have to, like, book a bunch of stuff for the fall and, and next year and, you know, to play the new stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't social, I've, I've never social mediated. Yeah. Is that a philosophical thing or is that a preference thing? I think it's a philosophical thing. Yeah. I uh, think it's a respectable choice. Yeah. Honestly. I just like, I don't, I don't like that, you know, and as you well know, I don't really text. 
Sure. Like, you know, it's I, I'm much more, you know, doing things in person and that way. Although, you know, I respect you have that to, institution. Though. Yeah, you got to put stuff on the internet somehow, though, where nobody knows what's going on. Right. So when I do something, it gets posted online. Uh, but there is no, you know, I don't like maintain my website or a Facebook page that tells people all the things that I'm doing. So yeah, like yeah. I play in that orchestra. Like I didn't tell anybody I play yeah. in that orchestra. Yeah. You know, it's like if you're gonna come to an orchestra gig anyway, I happen to be there. But I'm not gonna be like, you know, hey everybody, I'm playing in this orchestra. Come see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. They'll find it. You'll find it if you if you want to find <laughs> such things. It's out there on the interwebs. Yeah. Uh, and so right. So usually in town, you know, we'll play at Shapeshifter pretty often uh, because Matt Garrison is a good friend and kind of lets me go do whatever weird stuff I want to do there. And then wherever else around town and that stuff gets posted on like those places, websites. Um, but yeah, like those are yet more aspects of the business that I opted out of fairly early. Yeah. So there you go. yeah. When most of the other people plays, it is on the Facebook page. Right on. So, cool. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks Mappa. Yeah. Thanks Appreciate Bobby. It. Super fun. Great. Cool. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for checking out another episode of Jazztopia. Uh, be sure to check out all of Mappa's records on Hot Cup Records. Uh, he's got a lot of really amazing albums out, and be sure to check them out. Uh, if you'd like to keep up to date with what's happening with this show, you can follow us on our SoundCloud page, the Jazztopia SoundCloud page, or you can follow me on Facebook at Bobby Spellman Music or on Instagram at, at Bob Spellman. And I'll be sure to post some updates when we put out the new shows and keep you up to date with what's going on. All right, everybody. Well, enjoy your listening time and your playing time and your creative endeavors and your time indoors. Uh, we'll be out before you know it. And uh, we'll be looking forward to going back to see some wild shows and get back on the scene. All right. I hope everybody's having a great time. And I'll see you next week for another episode of Jazz Tobia. Thanks, everybody. Take care. See you.